Speaking of long-term things, we're in the Gospel of John. We're just plugging right along. Seven-ish months in, and we're in chapter 7. And so I would invite you to turn uh, your Bibles to chapter, chapter 7 of John. And uh, I'm going to invite, is it, is it Renee today? Hallelujah. All right. Renee is going to come and do the best scripture reading you've ever heard in your life. And uh, if not, it's still fine. We love you. So John chapter 7, and then we'll pray, and we'll spend some time diving in. The Word of God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know that whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you still seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Thank you, Renee. Would you pray with me? Father God, I ask and I pray for our time together today. I ask and I pray that you would help us in whatever state we gather in here today, whether our hearts are full of joy or sadness or confusion or frustration. God, wherever we're at, I'm asking and I'm praying that you would meet with us here today. Jesus, would you make yourself known in truth and in mercy today. Whatever else we could glean, whatever else we could learn, whatever else we could understand, Jesus, it's you that we want to understand above all else. For myself, God, I pray that you would guide me and and guard me, that my speech would be edifying and truthful. And God, for all of us, would you give us soft and teachable and receptive hearts that we might learn and grow we, just, we want to be closer to you, Lord Jesus. 
We want to be more like you, Jesus. We want to be more filled with your grace and your truth. We pray this all in Jesus' strong and healing name. Amen. You may have noticed as we have gone through the Gospel of John, if you've been paying attention very much at all, you may have noticed that this theme of misunderstanding keeps coming up. It's really one of the the major themes of, of the Gospel of John. And just a quick show of hands, how many of you have ever been misunderstood? Anybody ever been misunderstood? Misunderstanding is this interesting thing because it can be something very simple like, you know, um, a game, right? Kids play the game of telephone and you pass it around and, oh, there's always misunderstandings. Or it can be something rather serious. I remember if, if we were either in high school or we had just graduated and my wife, uh, one of her absolute best friends since high school, still are really good friends to this day, comes down to visits a few times a year. And I was having a conversation with this friend and we were talking, it was a weird conversation for me as a guy to be having with her, but it was something about how like she couldn't find clothes that fit her or for her body type or whatever. And, and what I was trying to encourage her, I was trying to say, it's, well, it's because you're, and she was an athlete and she played sports, and like, because you're, you're strong and you're athletic. But what came out of my mouth is, well, because you're beefy. And I, to this day, now I felt really hurt by that because I was trying to be complimentary and she misunderstood my heart and my intentions. And to this day, I can still use that word and we get a good laugh about it and she punches me and it's fine. But right, we can chuckle about that. Like I, that was a dumb thing for 19 year old me to say. But misunderstandings can actually be really genuinely hurtful. And in fact, Misunderstandings by those that you know the best, by those you're closest to, can be the most hurtful. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you can think of a time where you tried to express your opinion or you tried to share feelings or thoughts with someone you were close to and they just didn't get it? We see this time and time again in the Gospel of John. There's a, there's a scholar by the name of Andreas Kostenberger who, by the way, he's written something like, I kid you not, five different commentaries just on the Gospel of John. The guy cannot get enough John. Uh, but he writes about this section that we're about to go into here in, in chapter 7. He says, perhaps the densest distribution of misunderstandings is found in the context of Jesus' controversy with the Jews, these Jewish leaders, in chapter 7 and 8. But the entire festival cycle, chapters 5 through 10, is is replete, is full with the Jews' incomprehension of Jesus' true identity. Since they are bent on rejecting Jesus' messianic claim and thus fundamentally misconstrue the nature of his mission, it follows that they are regularly the victims of misunderstanding, and as such, they regularly fail to comprehend Jesus' otherworldly provenance and destiny. Put, Put it more simply, these chapters we're about to go into over and over and over again Jesus is misunderstood. And, and by the way, I should, I should mention this. It's not just in the gospel of John that Jesus is misunderstood. Anybody think about anybody that you know that's ever said something wrong about Jesus? You ever, you ever read a book and you're like, I don't think this person really understands Jesus. You ever read a blog or listened to a podcast? Like, wait a minute, what is, you ever listen to a preacher? I don't know if this guy knows what he's talking about, right? And I'm not even talking about like big famous name people. Like just look around this room right now. Anybody ever thought, oh, maybe I don't understand Jesus as, as well as I, as I think I do. Here, here's the big idea for today. Jesus, it's true. Jesus is just often misunderstood. But that doesn't change 
who he is, what he's done, and how we are to respond. And if I could be honest with you right here from the outset, I'm a little nervous to teach this. I'm a little nervous because I only have like a little, we don't have the podium. I have a little bit of notes, so that makes me nervous. But here's what makes me nervous is we live in this era of cynicism and a false type of humility, a false type of humility that says, well, people misunderstand Jesus and we get things wrong all the time. So what can we really know? And, and it's, it almost becomes this like kind of side door for falsehood masquerading as humility to come and enter in. Oh, well, you know, Jesus, people misunderstood Jesus all the time and we misunderstand Jesus and we do. We misunderstand Jesus because, oh, I don't know. He's the eternal son of God in human form. And oh yeah, we're human. We're mortal. He's immortal. And oh yeah, we're one body made up of different parts. And, and you see Jesus this way and you experience Jesus that way. And that's all fine. That's good. Maybe you're an arm and someone else is a pancreas and we see Jesus different. That's fine. But then, oh yeah, human sin and foolishness and rebellion and our minds have been darkened, the Bible says. So like, yeah, no duh, we get Jesus wrong. And we ought to have some humility. But we should also not yank the steering wheel into the opposite ditch of false humility, cynicism, that says, oh, we can't know anything. No, we can know God truly. We can't know God fully. He is beyond our comprehension. That's what makes him God, amen? But we can know God truly. So those are our ditches. Prideful confidence. Prideful cynicism. So we've set some guardrails there, okay? So that's the caveat up at the beginning here. But let's, let's dive into verse 1 and let's see. Jesus is going to get misunderstood all over the place by his family, by the crowd, by the religious leaders, the scriptures that Jesus is teaching, that he inspired to be written. People misunderstand. It's just left and right. So starting verse 1 with his family. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews, and that word means those, the Jewish religious leaders, this, this certain group of leaders, were seeking to kill him. Okay. Jesus is from Galilee in the north. That's the northern region. He was born down in Bethlehem, but he mostly grew up in Nazareth. It's, it's not the cool part of Israel. Judea, the south, that's where Jerusalem is and that's where all the action's happening and that's where people go and for the, for the feasts and for the festivals and that's where the big city and that's where the governor is and the, you know, the, the Roman governor and the, the Jewish king, the puppet king Herod, like that's where the action is. But he wouldn't go down to Judea. Why? Do you remember what happened last time he was in Jerusalem? You got to rewind back to chapter five. My friend uh, Matt Rosenberg, Rabbi Matt was here preaching on that passage. Remember Jesus did this thing. Remember, remember what he did? He healed a guy <gasps> and really set some people off because they viewed him as breaking their Sabbath laws, but also claiming to be equal with God. And so they're seeking to kill him. They're really mad. So Jesus, he's up in Galilee. He's back in his hometown, his home region, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem. Now, why would he need to go to Jerusalem? Verse two, because the Jewish Feast of Booths was at hand. You guys all ready to celebrate the Feast of Booths this fall? Excited about it? 
you may, you actually might be without even realizing the, the, the Jewish feast of booths, it happens in the fall and it's kind of one part uh, Thanksgiving harvest festival and one part religious festival, remembering when the people of Israel lived in tents or booths or tabernacles. If you want the Jewish word for it, it's Sukkot. And they remember when their ancestors lived in tents in the desert for 40 years and how God provided for them and took care of their needs. There's a, a, a Messianic Jewish commentator, David Stern, and he says this, I'll, I'll read this to you. It says, uh, families would, would build booths of palm branches, partly open to the sky to recall God's providence toward Israel during those 40 years of wandering in the desert and living in tents. And the festival also celebrates the harvest coming as it does at summer's end so that it's a time of Thanksgiving. I found this interesting. The Puritans, who took the Old Testament more seriously than most Christians, modeled the American holiday of Thanksgiving after Sukkot. Right, interesting little tidbit there. So when you and your family are getting that one last camping trip in for the fall, look up the dates and celebrate it during Sukkot. Make it a week-long trip. So this is at hand. It's the fall. Everyone's going to go to Jerusalem for this feast of booth. Verse 3, his brother said, Hey, Jesus, leave here. You should go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. Hey, Jesus, you're this pretty impressive miracle-working guy, right? Why are you hiding out up here in the north? Why are you hiding out in obscurity? You need to go down to the big city where the action is and show off. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world. And you think for like a split second, this is awesome. These are, these are Jesus' brothers, or at least his half-brothers. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. His father is God. But these brothers, these, these family relatives of him are saying, hey, we, we see these miracles you're doing. You ought to go show yourself. And you think, this is awesome. His brothers are believing in him. Verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. <laughs> Time and time again, John highlights for us that there's a type of belief that Jesus is after. It's not just believing that Jesus is this good person or not just belief that he's a, a miracle worker, but believing that he is the son of God. He is Israel's Messiah. He's the redeemer. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come your time is always here. My time has not yet come. This is interesting. You know, I was, I was reading, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but if you go into the prophets, if you go to the book of Zechariah, and maybe you should write this down. Some of you want to go do some homework after this. Zechariah 14. Actually, you can read 12 through 14. In the book of Zechariah, it's one of these Old Testament prophets. And he, start talk, he starts prophesying and talking about when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, it's going to be like this. And when the Messiah comes, it's going to be like that. And when the Messiah comes, one of the things he says in Zechariah 14, he says, all of the nations, all of the Gentiles will gather in and celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so whenever people gathered for the Feast of Booths, there was always this little bit of an excitement and this expectation. Is the Messiah going to show up? Is Messiah coming? It's Feast of Booths. Is this when the Messiah is going to show up? Jesus said, yeah, Messiah is here but it's not my time yet because the Passover lamb is going to be sacrificed in the springtime. He's literally saying, it's fall. We we need to wait till the spring. My time's not here yet. Then he says this, your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me 
because I testify about it that its works are evil. Okay, there's a couple things about that. First of all, that's a confrontational aspect of Jesus' ministry, is it not? Hey, world, you do rotten, evil stuff. Oh, thank you. Yes, please come tell me more, right? Talk about misunderstanding Jesus. Again, sometimes people want to only focus on the confrontational aspects of Jesus' ministry. They love verses like that. They love the whip and the money changers. And they love, you know, all of this, you know, he's coming back with judgment and a sword. They love those, a robe dipped in blood. Other people really like the verses about Jesus being tender to the woman at the well or being tender to the woman caught in the act of adultery or judge not lest ye be judged. And we, we try to create some sort of one dimensional Jesus that is either just nothing but grace and kindness and mercy or nothing but stern truth judgment when the reality is we don't get to pick and choose. There is a confrontational aspect to Jesus' ministry in his life. <laughs> but the other part about that just cracks me up. He's like, the world hates me because I tell them that their works are evil. The world can't hate you. Your time is always here. What's he saying to his brothers? You're just like them. Huh. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. My time has not yet fully come. It's fall. The lamb will be sacrificed in Passover time. So Jesus was misunderstood by his family. I'm not asking for a show of hands. Anybody ever been misunderstood by your family? Anybody ever been hurt and misunderstood by those who are closest to you? This really ought not to surprise us. Sometimes it's those we're closest to who hurt us and misunderstand us the most. And if that's you, Jesus can relate. Jesus can relate. Oh, they don't get me. I, I tried. I I made it obvious. I made my intentions obvious. I used nice words. I spoke gently. I, I know. I know. Jesus can relate. Let's at least start there. Jesus was misunderstood by those he was closest to. After saying this, verse 9, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. There's Jesus being sneaky again, right? I feel like there's a book to be written called like Sneaky Jesus. And you just go through all the times where Jesus like kind of like ninja, ninja Jesus or something. I don't know. He went up, not publicly, but in private. Why? Because what I said, the Jews and specifically those leaders were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? Like, this seems like a place that Jesus would show up. Where is he? Let's find him. And there was much muttering <laughs> about him among the people. This by the way, this passage just cracks me up. Much muttering, right? You guys know what muttering sounds like, right? Like, like some of you parents, you know, like, hey, you know, you need to do this thing or whatever. And the kid turns and you're like, what did you say? Right? Like it's, it's muttering, like under the breath, hushed. Why? Why are they muttering? Some people said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, for fear of these leaders, no one spoke openly of him. That's sad. Here's, here's what this makes me think about. We're having, man, in our culture, particularly in the United States of America, we're having a lot of conversation right now about the Second Amendment, particularly on the heels of just the tragic shooting a few weeks ago in, in, in Florida. 
and rights and gun rights and the Second Amendment. I know some of you are getting really nervous right now. It's okay. But before the Second Amendment is the First Amendment. And in the United States of America, we have this, this right, this privilege, this guaranteed right of freedom of speech. When I see this verse, you know, the, the, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It makes me think about just what a privilege it is that we can gather and we can do this. Like I can speak openly about Jesus Christ. Like not only can I speak openly about it, we can all sing about it and we can actually set up speakers to make my obnoxious voice louder to talk more about Jesus. Like what a great joy and a great privilege it is. And you've heard me say it if you've been around for any length of time. We should never take that for granted. Amen? And we have brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters, who we will worship the Lamb in eternity with, who do not have this privilege. And right now, they are gathering in secret and in private under threat of duress because they don't have this freedom to speak openly about Jesus. These people, the crowd, they, they're, 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 they don't even have the freedom and the privilege to speak openly about Jesus. But, but let me tell you this, as grateful and as thankful as I am for this right to freedom of speech. How many of you know that freedom of speech has a negative side? Because when you give people freedom of speech, well, then they speak freely. And sometimes that's not always how we shall say profitable, right? And if you don't believe me, just log into your Facebook account every once in a while and you see, I was trying to think of a nicer word, but all I can think of is cesspool of freedom of speech, and, and uninformed at times opinion. Look at the crowd, right? He's a good man. No, he's leading people astray, right? People are muttering. They've got these opinions. Opinion, opinion's an interesting thing, right? I, I was reading, um, I read Plato's Republic this last fall, and in there, there's a section where Plato and, well, Socrates and, and, the, and the people are arguing about opinion. Is, opinion. is it good to have opinion? Is it bad to have an opinion? And, and, and Plato writes, Socrates is the one who speaks it, and so you know it's something he's trying to argue for. He says, basically, opinion, it's not ignorance. Like, it's better than ignorance. Like, you can just be ignorant. That's bad. And then you can have knowledge, and that's good. Opinion is kind of somewhere in the middle, it's like you're, you're trying to work on knowing something. You don't actually know something, but you're working on knowing something. Like, that's opinion. It's kind of, it's somewhere in the middle, in between complete ignorance and knowledge. Or, like the quote that I love, is opinions are like armpits. Everyone has a couple and they usually stink, right? Like, you, you, you're wrestling through this opinion. Now, listen. We need to have places where we can wrestle through opinions and we can talk to people about opinions because honestly, there's things we sometimes just don't know. But when pride enters in, we start spouting opinions like they're knowledge. And we become prideful, we become overconfident about things that we don't actually really truly know. He's a good man. No, he's leading the people astray. Are either of those things true? Not ultimately well, he's not leading the people astray. He's leading the people astray from what these particular religious leaders wanted, but he's not leading the people astray. He's leading the people toward God. And is he a good man? Yeah, but is that what he came to claim about himself? Did Jesus come and say, I am the, a good man. You should follow me because of my great example. Is that what Jesus said? No, he said ridiculous things like, I come from heaven. Before Abraham existed, I am. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. Like, what? Let me just caution you. 
I mean, here's a, here's a practical tip. Listen. We need to practice humility in our opinions. Jesus was misunderstood by the crowd because sometimes the crowd is more interested in spouting off opinions than arriving at actual knowledge. Try this, okay? Next time you're in a conversation with somebody, say, just, just use this type of language. Like, I could be wrong, but I think, and then fill in the gap. Hey, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'm not seeing the whole thing here, but, uh, and then, and, and, you know, seems to me that, try, try some language like that. Again, this doesn't mean that you're not allowed to have opinions. It doesn't mean you're not like, hey, I need to wrestle through some stuff here. I need to talk about some things. It doesn't mean that you can't arrive at knowledge. I'll get there. Trust me. We're, we're not saying to throw out anything that you know and I know nothing. That, that's, again, that's that postmodern cynicism, carbon monoxide, spiritual death. But just make sure that you want to actually arrive at understanding, not just expressing your opinion. Okay? I'm just getting started. Let's keep going. The next section, that was, that was for you. The next section is in particular for me and any of you who have a position of spiritual leadership in someone's life. I don't like this next section. This is why we go line by line, verse by verse to the Bible. Because I'll be honest, in my sinfulness, I'd want to skip over sections like this. Here we go. Pray for me, people. About the middle of the feast, it's a week-long feast. Jesus made it three days. He went up into the temple and began teaching. I love that. <laughs> ah, just, I got to start teaching here. The Jews, these leaders, they marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus grew up in a, you know, the northern region. He never went to rabbi school, their equivalent of seminary. He was the, the, the son, the adopted son of Joseph, who was a carpenter and a craftsman, a tradesman, somebody who works with his hands, a blue collar type of worker. And yet here goes Jesus into this area in the, in the, in the temple and begins teaching and people are blown away because he actually sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Maybe it's because he's the one that actually inspired the scriptures to be written. Just a thought. But they're marveling. He didn't go to school. He never studied. And Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Oh, here we go again. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm just speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true. Are we pointing people back to God? Is it about God's glory or is it about just me, the teacher? And in him, there is no falsehood. Okay. Jesus is confronting people who have a position of religious authority. They have a position of teaching and shepherding and caring and protecting and correcting the people that are entrusted to them. And we don't see it as explicitly in this passage, but we can see it all throughout the gospel accounts that these religious leaders had not only wrong expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like, but all sorts of ways that they were colluding with the enemy. The, the, the people of Israel were under Roman occupation. 
And just to put it as simple, at the, the risk of being reductionistic, they thought that when the Messiah showed up, he would be a rear-end kicking soldier with a sword and a horse, and he was going to stomp all over Rome and kick him out and make Israel be restored to the glory that it once had. That's their expectations for the Messiah. Yet this Messiah said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. My time is coming where I go. uh, You cannot follow. I'm coming to die for my enemies. That's this Messiah. And they missed it. They had all sorts of expectations. And then on top of it, they were colluding with the enemy. We know from the other gospel accounts, and we know from even extra biblical history that was written around that time, that these particular Jewish religious leaders were working with the Romans to keep peace in the area. They had all these other motives. They didn't truly want to see the Messiah as he was presenting himself. They wanted to just keep the peace with Rome and not cause a scene until the real Messiah showed up. They had all sorts of wrong expectations. Now, what does this say for me and any of you who have a position of leadership in someone, someone else's life? Well, Jesus was misunderstood by the religious leaders. And again, it shouldn't surprise us because sometimes leaders are more concerned with their own wants and desires than they are with honoring God's will. Not all of you are pastors, Some of you are community group leaders. Some of you teach our children. Some of you have a gift of evangelism and you just get into conversations with people all the time about Jesus. Some of you are moms and dads and you have a position of authority and leadership and influence, spiritually speaking, in your family's life. Does this sober you a little bit? Feel the weight and the responsibility? Why am I doing what I'm doing? This particular set of verses is what kept me up this week in prepping for the sermon. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I would love to stand up here and say that in my three years of being the preaching pastor of Sound City Bible Church, I have done nothing but love and serve and care for people out of the purest love that Jesus put into my heart. I tried to convince myself of that this week, but it was a foolish endeavor. If I haven't hurt you, if a community group leader hasn't hurt you, if someone else in the church with a position of leadership hasn't hurt you at some point, I don't mean this to sound too cynical, but just give it some time. And if you are someone who has been hurt by someone with a position of leadership in the church, then Jesus knows what that feels like too. Someone who is supposed to teach and protect and love and correct They got Jesus completely wrong and they're insulting him publicly. Oh, this idiot, what does he know? How is it that he can teach like this? He never went to school. Maybe your hurts look different, but Jesus knows what it feels like. Not only to be misunderstood by family, but to be misunderstood and hurt by those with positions of leadership. Jesus gets it. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Boy, that is an insult to religious leaders who are all about knowing the law. You don't keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now the crowd's listening in and they say, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? 
I wish we could hear this in the vernacular, like just the, the back and forth. Like this is a schoolyard. Like this is getting heated, right? Like this is, you people, you, you don't even keep the law of Moses. And they're like, you're, you're out of your mind. You have a demon. No, who's trying to kill you? What are you even talking about? Jesus. I did one work. Jesus said, I did one thing. And you all marvel, you all lost your minds. You loved it. You freak out about it. What's the one work he's talking about? Healing the man at the pool. We're we're like back several chapters ago. They're still bent out of shape. Look, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Hold on. I didn't see talking about circumcision coming. Okay, let's go there. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. Circumcision has been around for way before Moses, right? Abraham circumcised himself. That's a different sermon for a different Sunday. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you so angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. I'm not just dealing with one body part. I'm dealing with the whole body here. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Okay. You might be thinking, where in the world, what is Jesus talking about? Here's what he's talking about. You guys are so mad at me because I healed a man on the Sabbath and you have this law and you have this rule. And the Bible says to do not your regular work on the Sabbath, but take a day of rest to honor the Lord, the God who created everything. He took a day of rest. If God takes a day of rest, you might try taking a day of rest and not being so prideful as to think you don't need a day of rest. And then Jesus goes, oh yeah, but there's this other law that says, Baby boys who are born must be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth, which sometimes falls on the Sabbath. What do you do? Obey the law that says circumcise on the eighth day or obey the law that says do no regular work. He's like, you people have figured this out. You got these seemingly conflicting laws. You figured it out. We need to honor God and we need to circumcise on the eighth day. That's not a violation of the Sabbath to circumcise a baby boy on the eighth day because God commanded it to do it. Why would it be a violation of the Sabbath for me to heal somebody on the eighth day? Quit freaking out, Jesus is saying. It's in the Greek. You have to, it's, it's there. <laughs> Here's the point. Have you ever been how we shall say confused by things in the scriptures that sometimes seems like one thing's pointing this one way and one thing's pointing another way. Anybody ever had that experience when you're reading the Bible? Well, well, is it this or is it that? Is it, you know, in Romans, we're not justified by works or is it James where we're justified by works? And then you click on the internet and you go down a, just a wormhole of infected blog posts and there are, see the Bible's full of contradictions. You can't trust anything. Like, no, you gotta understand it, right? Here's my, here's my personal favorite one. There's a, there's, a, there's a section in Proverbs where it's literally back-to-back verses. One says, and I'm paraphrasing, when you're talking to a fool and he's being all fooly in his foolishness, don't answer him. It's just a waste of your time. Literally, the next verse. When you're talking to a fool, talk to him because you might help pull him out of his foolishness. And you're like, well, doggone it, Solomon, which one is it? And it's like, yeah, the answer is, well, it depends. This is where wisdom comes in. This is where understanding these, these tensions between Jesus coming full of grace and, and truth, between Jesus coming with confrontation and coming with love, between healing a man on the Sabbath and honoring God's commandment to take a day of rest. How do we wrestle through these things? It's hard. It's hard. There's a passage in, 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 in 1 Timothy where the Apostle Paul writes, he says, 
You know, what we're, trying to get, what we're trying to aim at here, the goal of our instruction, that's teaching and knowledge. The goal of the instruction is love. Knowledge, love. Like, that's a tension right there. Comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Some have departed, and they just go down all sorts of random rabbit holes and converse, fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're saying. They just got a bunch of opinions and what they're insisting upon. And then here's the, here's what it says. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We have to learn how to use the scripture. These people misused the scripture. Just think about that. Jesus, the son of God, the the divine logos, the word of God incarnate is having his words misunderstood and twisted. You ever had your words misunderstood and twisted? Jesus knows what that feels like. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage? There's a lot in there. But I want to I boil it down to, to four things for us to think about. And the first one is this. We got to pursue humility. Okay? And, and listen. I, well, let me just say it this way. We as Americans are not particularly fond of humility. Okay? You and I are preconditioned by our culture to love confidence and even braggadociousness. Okay, uh, quick show of hands. How many of you have been enjoying the NCAA March Madness basketball tournament, right? Anybody here? All right, four of you. That's pretty good. All right. What about the Olympics, right? Okay, here's one. Here's one. Um, This might be too soon, too painful to go there. Richard Sherman was released by the Seahawks recently, and he got picked up by, I know, I'm sorry, Anton. He got picked up by the I can't even say it. I can't even bring myself to that. 49ers. Now, when Richard Sherman was on our team, and let's, let's just say Richard Sherman has a mouth, and he ta- you guys know who I'm talking about, right? Like, I'm the great, what did he, he literally said, I'm the greatest of all time. Don't you, don't you ever talk about me, right? And we're all like, ha ha, Richard Sherman, he's so funny because he's on our team. I guarantee you, he's going to do something, one thing, he'll probably do one thing good before he blows up his other leg with San Francisco and he's going to pop off. We're all going to be like, that jerk and his big mouth, right? Like we love confident, braggadocious. Like we're just culturally conditioned to love that sort of a thing. We're not, we don't put people up on pedestals who say like, you know what? May I decrease and he increase. We're like moving on, boring, right? Like that's, That's what we're conditioned to. Now, you and I as Christians, we know that Christ wants us to pursue humility. Hey, is it okay for me as a preacher? I mean, you guys are probably even conditioned to want me as a preacher to stand up here like, I know everything about the Bible and let me confidently assert it. Sometimes I'm going to stand up here and say, I don't really even know. Okay? And that's got to be okay because it's the truth. This is the word of God. You don't need the word of Aaron. I'm going to point you to those things that I know. I'm going to be honest when there's things I don't know. And I'm going to trust that you have the Holy Spirit and you have the scripture and we have community and we can wrestle towards God together in humility. Amen? Second thing is, I do want to encourage you to pursue knowledge. Pursue knowledge. Don't say, oh, I need to be humble. That means I shouldn't dive deep or I shouldn't wrestle or I shouldn't think through. My opinions have not yet arrived at knowledge. How are you going to get there if you don't start wrestling? 2 Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace 
and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the humility, the grace. Ah, I really need to, to lower myself. And knowledge. Like, let's go. Come on. No, we cannot understand God fully because he's beyond our comprehension. But God in his grace has made himself known truly. That ought to be incredibly encouraging to us. We can know some things about God. We can pursue knowledge. Number three, reject cynicism. This whole idea of, well, we can't know anything, and so we just need to constantly be burning everything to the ground, and nobody, nobody who asserts to know anything knows anything because to know Jesus is to know nothing. Like, just stop that. Come on. And, and let me just say this. <laughs> I moved to Seattle coming up on seven years ago. Cynicism is a virtue in the Seattle area. When I first moved to Seattle, I remember, and I'm I'm legitimately telling you this, I felt embarrassed for a season because I didn't hate everything. Like I was talking to people, I'm like, oh, I kind of like this thing. And they were literally like, you like that? We hate everything. We're bitter. We like bitter beers and IPAs and we're like bitter about it. Like just... And then... Like, I have to travel this week for, for school. I'm going to go to Florida, and it's like the South, and people are like, nice. They're like, oh, we just like things. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, oh, no. Like, I've caught it too. This cynicism just runs deep in the Pacific Northwest. You guys, cynicism is just, it's poison to our souls. It feels so good. It feels like I know something that you in your ignorance don't know and you in your stupid overconfidence, you think you know some things about God, but we just gotta be humble and burn everything to the ground. Please don't buy into that. Yes, humility, no cynicism. And then lastly, pursue healing. Pursue healing. Some of you have been hurt by other people in the church. It's a real problem. It's a real issue. Thinking back to Jesus being hurt by his own brothers, it it triggered in my mind, there's this verse in Hebrews chapter 2 that says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. I have been embarrassed multiple times by people who claim to be the people of Jesus. Anybody with me? You ever seen a Christian acting or behaving a certain way? Like, ooh, no, not that. Ooh, shut your mouth. Ooh, stop. You're embarrassing me. And here comes Jesus in his grace and his mercy saying, I'm not not ashamed to call you my brothers. (laughs) The blood of Jesus is pretty powerful. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough not only to forgive us of our sins, but to heal us of the sins that have been committed against us. I don't know what your experiences are. I don't know what you've walked through. I don't want to in any way, shape, or form make light of them, but I know this. Jesus can redeem. Jesus can heal. Jesus can cleanse. Jesus can restore. Amen? And Jesus can Maybe, maybe we won't see the full restoration in this lifetime, but one day we will see Jesus perfectly and no one will misunderstand him anymore 
Because we won't be looking through a glass darkly. We will see him face to face. He will be fully known. We will be fully known. And so whether it's in this life or the life that is to come, Jesus knows and he loves and he cares and he sees you. Some of you, the healing that you need to seek is not that you have been hurt, but as you look back over your life, think, I have hurt. I have misunderstood Jesus. I have thrown some bombs at people that I need to go repent to them. Maybe Jesus is inviting you to do that today. To go to someone else and say, I hurt you in the name of Jesus. I didn't understand. Will you please forgive me? Father God, I'm asking and I'm praying right now, wherever we need to respond, every, every one of us is different, every one of our situations is different, but Holy Spirit, you're present with us. God, for all of us who have trusted in Christ Jesus for salvation, I pray that you would lead us in the way that you want us to respond. God, for some of us, it's to just repent of pride and, and seek humility. For some, it's to repent of cynicism and, and just constantly berating everything. God, I, I pray... For some of us, it's that we would dare to hope and believe that healing is possible. And God, for others, it's the courage and confidence to go to someone else that we've heard and say, I'm sorry. God, would you help us now as we enter into this time of responding to you, that we'd respond as you lead us, as you guide us, as you want us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to respond, and we're going to do so in a couple of ways. First, through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest or, or someone who's new with us, we don't believe in arm twisting or, or making some big deal of this. We, we believe this is an opportunity for all who have received God's grace to respond. Guys, I'm so encouraged by the work that Jesus is doing in and through this church family. And the giving of the tithes and offerings helps make a lot of that possible. We're I mean, just, there's too much to even mention right now. But I'm just so excited about seeing the ways that, that lives are being transformed and changed. And sending people, we had, um, where's Sam and Shushan? Are you guys in this service? There they are. They're leaving to Armenia here. Your Sam is in a few days to go preach the gospel and in a really difficult region of the world. Julie, where are you at? Julie's going to Uganda here in a couple of weeks and we're sending some markers with her. I mean, like there's people, like not only just in the Puget Sound, but around the world. Can you guys, like that's just ridiculous. Like look around this room that us, we're gonna have impact for the gospel around the world. That's crazy cool stuff that God's doing. So give generously as God would lead you as an act of worship. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table, remembering Jesus' body and, and blood being poured out for us. You want to talk about being misunderstood. <laughs> Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. We're going to welcome our younger students class in to join us here as we enter into this time of response, and then we'll sing. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, Then the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, if we get nothing else right about Jesus, if we misunderstand all sorts of other things, let's remember this. His body was broken. His blood was shed that we might be redeemed. Then there's this invitation to reflect. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And after doing that, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, some of you today, there's a moment where you're like, man, I need to go make something right with somebody else. 
You have freedom and forgiveness and permission to not celebrate communion today. That's okay. Go be, be reconciled with your brother. Go make it right. Come back next week full of joy to be able to celebrate at the table next week. But for the rest of us, I'll pray. Musicians will play quietly for a moment to give you time to just think and to pray and to reflect. Don't rush through this. Don't rush through this. So hurry up. Don't rush. Let the Spirit do his work in your heart now. Father, I ask that you would lead us and guide us and direct us. God, we, man, Jesus, we misunderstand you all the time. Would you forgive us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you grow us? Would you teach us? Would you correct us? Would you shape us? Would you heal us? Would you minister your grace to us? God, as we gather around this table right now to eat and to drink, may we remember it's not us that nourishes ourselves, it's you. I pray now for my brothers and sisters that we would bring our hearts before you. We would receive what you want to give to us today. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.